Could everyone stand with me, please? For the reading of God's word. Turn with me to uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. If you uh, don't happen to have a Bible with you, there's one in the seat pocket in front of you. Uh, be sh- it's on page uh, 573 of that Bible, if you'd like to look there. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, or you need one in any way, just p- feel free to take that. It would be our gift to you, so just uh, feel free. Uh, okay, First Thessalonians 2, verse 1. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been in shamefully treated in Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext of, for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her children, So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For, you remember, brothers, our labor and our toil. We worked night and day, and that we might not be a burden to any of you while we Proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. This is God's word to you. Thank you, Daryl. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for your word. And God, we thank you that you have made it available to us and that we have the, the opportunity to turn our attention to what you have said. And Lord, we put our confidence in what you said because you are not a man that you can lie So, God, I just come, um, God, just zealously asking for your help this morning. Lord, I uh, prayed earlier about the frailty of us as a congregation. And, Lord, that would be hypocritical if I I did not acknowledge, rather, my own frailty, Lord God, as a messenger, as someone who has been called to share your gospel. And so, Lord, I need your help this morning. God, will you come and supply for me a strength? 
a wisdom, a power that I do not have on my own, Lord God. And so that you, and not me, and not anyone else, would be glorified and exalted, but your gospel would be heralded, and it would truly reveal itself as the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. I thank you for your word once again, God, and I ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. I want to thank Daryl this week and Paul last week for helping us by reading the text. You, this is something relatively new to us, and so you might be wondering what that's all about. Well, we just decided, um, the elders and I decided that um, we wanted you to be able to participate in the sharing of the Word. The Bible says that as a church that we are to devote ourselves to the public reading of Scripture. And so uh, that's what we're going to be doing from now on, and I'm going to be calling on many of you to help us with that from time to time to help us uh, begin our messages uh, by helping us read through the text. And uh, the upside is that means less minutes that you have to listen to me. So, you know, there's an upside to that. Uh, So we've been discussing how Paul uh, and his missionary team, along with Silas and Timothy, how they established uh, the church in Thessalonica in just a few short weeks. The Bible tells us that he was in Thessalonica for three separate or three consecutive rather Sabbath days, preaching the gospel, convincing people that Jesus was the Christ. But as you'll recall, he was run out of town when the Jews who were jealous of the powerful impact that the gospel was having in that city uh, started a riot. And so for his own safety, he moved on uh, to Athens and then he moved from there to Corinth. And all that time he left Timothy and Silas behind. And while in Corinth, he wrote his first epistle or letter. All of the books of Paul in the New Testament are letters that were originally written to churches or individuals. And, he, and while he was in Corinth, he, he wrote this letter of uh, Thessalonians. It was after um, a season of longing to hear back from Timothy and Silas. As we mentioned last week, there was no electronic communication. There wasn't even a real postal service. All messages had to be traveled on foot by by courier and it was about 355 miles from they were separated by about that distance and it would have taken a long time over mountains and through forests and across the sea to get back to Paul and so he was waiting and he was really anxious we get the sense that he was real anxious to hear how this new church was faring it had started so quickly and now there was a huge outpouring of persecution and he wanted to know how they were doing so so uh, the, this book, this First Thessalonians, this first epistle of Paul, was written after Timothy and Silas returned with news of the church, as well as a bunch of questions that those believers had for Paul. Now, fortunately, as we talked about this last week, the report from the church was very good. The, the church was thriving, and the people were standing strong in their faith. They were demonstrating that the Holy Spirit was working on the inside of them and he was transforming their lives. And Paul reports in chapter 1 that they had even become known as passionate witnesses for Jesus and his gospel in all the region of Macedonia during the time that Paul was separated from them. But chapter 2, which we read the first part of today, it gives us a strong indication that something else was happening. 
there in Thessalonica. What was happening was that the integrity of Paul's ministry, the integrity of his motives for ministry, they seemed to have been slandered by some group or another. Now, we don't know what group it was. It could have been those same jealous Jews. It could have been the cynical, the cynical pagan philosophers that filled that city from one end to the other. It, it, it could have been both. We don't know. But we arrive at this conclusion because chapter 2, if you, if you remember what we just read, if you want to open your Bibles and look at it again, it reads like a legal defense. It's almost like Paul is on the stand defending his ministry there in the city of Thessalonica. Now keep in mind that Paul's visit would have been fresh in the memory of the Thessalonians, and so he appeals all throughout this portion we read today to their experience with his ministry, uh, and, and he, he uses that experience that they had very recently with his ministry to defend himself. He uses phrases like this throughout that passage. He says, you yourselves know. And he says, as you know. And he says, you remember. And he says, you are witnesses over and over again. And he even adds this phrase in there, God is witness. So he's appealing to all of that, their experience, to defend himself. He's appealing to their own reason, their own experience to establish the integrity of his work among them so that no matter what his opponents say, no matter what they say, the church's own memories will confirm his love and his effective labor there. There's no greater defense than what people actually witnessed. And and so this reflects kind of what we read in 1 Thessalonians last week. He said, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. So Paul said in chapter 1, one of the things that he said that happened as a result of their ministry is that their ministry served as a model for the Thessalonians' imitation. It, it, was, it was like he was saying, hey, this is how you're supposed to be as followers of Christ, as believers. And he even commends them in chapter 1. He says, you became imitators of us. Now, I want you to focus on that for a moment, because as believers, we should be very nervous about calling attention to ourselves, because none of us, we all know, we talk about it all the time around here, that none of us are righteous enough to save ourselves. None of us are good enough to earn God's grace. And we've always got to be ready and striving to point people to Jesus in a way for ourselves. But don't get so caught up in that thought thought that it somehow negates the fact that we who follow Christ should live exemplary lives. Exemplary lives means that we should be an example. Do you agree with that? We should live exemplary lives. And they should be, the Bible says, beyond reproach. And this is so that people can see evidence of the gospel's power and see evidence of the Spirit's work within us and and thereby be drawn to it, that that they'll have something to look at and say, I want what that person has. I want the, 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 the power of God to be revealed in my life like it is in that person. I fear, I have a deep fear that many believers live the kinds of lives that can cause onlookers to charge the message of the gospel with being false advertising. I cringe. I literally cringe. Ginger will testify to this. I cringe every time I see some heretic or some fool or even some criminal in the news being described as a Christian. Or worse yet, a preacher or a pastor. I hate that. 
I want to scream at the TV. I mean, literally just shout my lungs out. Please do not lump them in with us. But truthfully, it gives me and it gives you tremendous opportunity to pause and analyze the message that we're broadcasting about this gospel that we've embraced. It gives us tremendous pause. Ask yourself, when you see that, when some, some charlatan is paraded in front of the news, even though it might be on a much smaller level, ask yourself, does your speech, does your attitude make the gospel appealing in its consistency? Or does your speech and your attitude make the gospel utterly distasteful in its inconsistency? Let me let you in. On a little secret about Christian marketing culture. A Christian t-shirt on your body and a Christian bumper sticker on your car can't fix what's broken with your actual daily testimony. But Paul had a whole different mindset about this idea of being an example. He said, follow me. Follow me as I follow Christ. He told Timothy, he said, you are to be an example to all the believers regardless of your youth. He told the Corinthian church that they were to be living or that they were, not that they were to be, but they were living letters. They were living letters written to the whole world to be known and to be read by all, both, by, both in, their, in their right living, they're endorsing the gospel and those who were preaching it. So ask yourself frequently, what kind of example are you to others? But Paul's you know, work of ministry wasn't just about giving the Thessalonians an example or some ideal to live up to. He, he wasn't just trying to, to, to make this defense for that. He was defending his ministry. This is more important for the security, the safety of the new believers because he did not want them to be deceived. Thank God for people who will not compromise on the truth so that you and I won't be deceived. That's a great blessing. Sometimes what they say hurts and it stings and it steps on our toes, but it's a lot better than being deceived. To coming to the end of your life and finding out that somebody had been selling you a whole a bill of goods the entire time. So he was defending that security. He, he lists several things that he might have been being accused of by the Jews and the pagans in Thessalonica. And, and these guys, these Jews and pagans, probably weren't too excited to be stripped of the influence that they had had for so long because people were receiving the gospel. And so he says this in, in verse 3 of the passage we read today, For our appeal, in other words, our preaching, our presentation of the gospel, our appeal does not spring from error or impurity, or any attempt to deceive. For we never came with words of flattery, this is verse 5 now, for with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others. Paul states that they're preaching, that they did in Thessalonica. It wasn't tainted by error. It wasn't tainted by impurity or deception. Everything they said 
was backed by two things, the, the authority of Scripture and the power of the Holy Spirit. Everything. They weren't covetous of power. They weren't trying to build their own little thing in Thessalonica. They weren't covetous of money. They didn't employ trickery to gain a few converts at all costs. In the previous verse, Paul actually points to the persecution and the shameful treatment that they suffered while at Philippi. You guys remember the story of they're, they're, they're jailed, they're beaten, they're, they're locked up, and they sing praises, and God delivers them miraculously from prison. And he says that that shameful treatment, that persecution, actually, I want you to think about the, the logic or illogic of this, depending on your perspective. He says that that shameful treatment was the impetus for their boldness to go to Thessalonica. He says, because, if you don't mind me saying, because we got our butts kicked, we went on to Thessalonica to preach there too. Didn't care. Whatever happened, we were, we were in this thing. I want you to understand why that's so important. Because if their message had been frail or weak or false or, or not of God, would they have suffered that again and again and again to defend a false message? One of the greatest stories in the Bible, in the book of Acts, is when Paul has been preaching in, in a city, I believe it was Lystra, and he preaches, and the people get so mad at the truth of the gospel that they literally drag him to the edge of town and stone him until they believe that he is dead. And Paul's response isn't to say, well, that was a dumb idea. I don't know what I was thinking. I'm heading right back to Tarsus or Jerusalem, and I'm just going to stay there. No. What the Bible says, they disperse. They think he's dead. And Paul gets up with a bloody, broken body and goes like this and walks right back into town to begin preaching all over again. Please tell me. Please tell me one more time. Tell me one more time how difficult it is to share the gospel with your friends and neighbors. Tell me one more time. Just one more time. Tell me. How, how difficult is it? Listen, that's not some arrogant guy up here on a platform sticking my finger in your face. I'm telling you, I feel the same thing. And yet I've never had a rock bounce off my skull because I was preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not one time in my life. May we all be examined by the Holy Spirit in this. So he goes on to say in verse 5 and 6 that he and Silas and Timothy came as servants of the Most High God. They never intended to exploit the Thessalonians in any way. He says they flattered no one. You know what that means? That means that they spoke of both God's wrath, which is very real. Don't ever deceive yourself that God has somehow turned a corner and he's not angry with sinners anymore because he is. They spoke of God's wrath, but they also spoke of his mercy. They weren't just telling the people only what they wanted to hear. And my second great fear that I want to share with you this morning is that on Judgment Day, many of us will have to give account to a holy God for our flatteries. As we've sometimes tried to water down or soften the whole counsel of God's word in an effort not to offend sinners, we are willing to offend God. They weren't motivated by greed. They weren't going 
digging in the pockets of the people they preached to, like the cultists all around them in the first century, or, or the TV huckster preachers of today who use God's people to, to fund the desires of their wicked, greedy hearts, buying multi-million dollar homes and airplanes. And lastly, reflecting on Isaiah 42, 8. It says, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Paul says that they did not seek glory for themselves from anyone, not the people of the church, not even their own colleagues. Oftentimes, in fact, Ginger and I had a conversation with a man uh, probably two weeks ago or less that was asking, you know, he's like, oh, I, I just can't get anybody to give me an opportunity to preach. And, and, and the intent of his heart was to get me to say, well, come on, buddy. You know, and I sat there kind of stone-faced, you know, and, and I wasn't doing it because what, what I was discerning was that the heart was he just wants an audience. He, I'm not judging the man. He's not here this morning, but, but I'm not judging him. He, he wanted an audience. He wasn't zealous for the glory of God. He wasn't zealous for the glory of God. He was zealous for an audience. That's glory seeking. I've gotten in this habit of, of uh, uh, you know, telling people who say, oh, I just, I just got to preach. I just want to preach. I say, man, there's a park full of people over there. There's a high school filled with, with uh, students. If you're a student that would love to or that need to, whether they'd love to or not, need to hear the gospel. You have a whole workplace. Preaching is not designed just for here. It's designed for out there. Preaching is just proclamation of the gospel. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you can proclaim the gospel anywhere, at any time, with the full power of the Holy Spirit that you expect me to have right here. Paul didn't see glory. They weren't trying to get some broadcast deal or make the bestseller list. They were entirely spent, expended for the glory of the king. I love verse 4. He says, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please men, but to please God, who tests our hearts. God's glory was their total motivation. Giving God glory was the fountain of all of their power, of all of their endurance for ministry. When they say that they've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, they mean that their ministry had the blessing of God because they were following Christ, not seeking glory, money, or popularity. That's why their ministry was so blessed, because they were, they were living for God's glory. If they got stoned, if they didn't have enough uh, money to provide for themselves, it didn't matter. The God's glory was their sustaining force. Their lives, because of the gospel, were governed and filled by God's Spirit, and they submitted to His will, and, and they weren't driven by their own interests, their own passions, their own agendas. Because of this, that promise that Jesus made back in Acts 1-8 was fulfilled in their ministries, that they would receive power after the Holy Spirit came upon them. And what? So they could preach good or get a new car or whatever? No! The Bible says you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you so that you can be my witnesses. 
And that's what the power was doing in them. The Holy Spirit had filled them and imparted, it had been imparted to them, and they were, they were proclaiming the gospel under his power. I'm telling you, Paul says we've been approved by God. To have the approval of God is the most freeing thought or should be the most freeing thought for a believer. Absolutely. There's nothing better than having the approval and knowing you have the approval of God. W.A. Criswell for decades was the pastor of uh, First Baptist Church in Dallas. And he once told a story of a train master who was responsible for a busy metropolitan depot. And someone in the station commended him one day because the way he displayed grace was incredible. He, he, he had grace and tact as he juggled all the tasks of his job. He was constantly answering passenger questions and giving directions and maintaining order in the train station, even when dealing with so many hurried, disgruntled, and angry people. I'm telling you, Travelers, whether it's me or you or anyone else, travelers are the most horrible people in the whole wide world. We just are. Have you ever seen, how much patience and grace have you seen exuding from the people in the airport? And you make them stand in line for about an hour, and even that little measure of grace is out the window. And so he's dealing with these people constantly. And, and they say, how do you do it? And, and he says, it's really no big deal. It's no big deal. He says, see, I don't have to please all these people. I only have one person, one man that I have to please. And he points up, and there's a little window in an upstairs office, and his boss is looking down at him. I wonder what it would be like if we got up in the morning, went to school, went to work, walked in our neighborhoods, and we lived our lives only to please our master. What would that be like? How would your life look differently by making that your, your aim to, to live as only pleasing to the Lord? How less harried and stressful would your life be if, it were, if, if we were only after the approval of God and, and everything else flowed out of that pursuit for the approval of God to please him? But Paul said, I think it was to the Thessalonians, I mean, to, I'm sorry, to the Philippians, find out what pleases the Lord. Let us make it our goal. In fact, Proverbs twenty nine twenty five says, The fear of man lays a snare. Oh, guys, I'm here to testify to you, to my own shame, that I've lost years of my life and my effectiveness with the gospel by just the way I feared other people. Feared their opinions. Feared that what they could do to me. I, I, I worried so much about that. It was a trap. It was like, it was like I was a, just some innocent animal. And, and that fear of man just kind of snatched me up. But the proverb also says, whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. They can't be trapped. They can't be ensnared. So Paul says that their preaching was motivated by a desire to please God and not man. May it be so with you and I as well. Notice that in verse 4, Paul says that they are approved by God or they were approved by God, past tense. And yet later he says that God tests our hearts, present tense. This is a good thing to remember. Christianity 101. This is a good thing to remember. If we are truly in Christ, if we have truly placed our faith in Christ, we are fully justified and nothing can change that. We are approved by God. It's great news. 
Great news. But we also have to know, because of the work of sanctification, God is daily testing the integrity of our hearts and our confession. And he's, he's allowing whatever is necessary to come into our lives so that we will receive what we really want, and that is to be molded into the image of Jesus Christ. So Paul stated what they weren't during their time in Thessalonica. Now he's going to turn his attention to what they were while they were there. He says that they were gentle in verse 7. He says that they were affectionately desirous of them in verse 8. He says that they worked hard not to be a burden to the believers in verse 9. He says that their conduct was holy and righteous and blameless in verse 10. Paul sums up their heart towards the new church in, in, in verse 8. He says, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. See, it's this sharing of the life, sharing of the self, as Paul puts it, that defines authentic ministry. Now, again, don't mistake what I'm saying. I'm not talking about formal, paid, church, ministry, ministry. I'm talking about when I say ministry, I'm talking about what you do as, as a light bearer for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Authentic ministry is marked by the sharing of the life. Without this element of a shared life, listen to me carefully, without the element of a shared life, you are either only a lecturer or a religionist. If you're not sharing your life also with those who you're, who you're preaching to. When Paul says that they shared their selves, that Greek word is even deeper. It's, it's the word suke, which means the soul. Paul shared their souls with the Thessalonians. The soul is the seat of the, of the human mind, the, the human will, the human emotions. In using the word suke, Paul is telling the Thessalonians that they occupied his mind. He's saying that they were never never ever far from his thoughts. Remember what we read last week in chapter 1? He says, we give, thanks to you, to, uh, we give thanks to God always for all of you. We are constantly mentioning you before our, uh, in our prayers. We're remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, labor of love, steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. When people truly have a burden... To see people come to know Christ, or even to people who know Christ to come to grow in Him, it's not something you can just kind of clock out from. Those people that you love and that you're wanting to bring the power of the gospel into their lives, they're going to creep into your subconscious. They're going to keep you up at night. They're going to become the centerpiece of all your intercessory praying. Their burdens, without a doubt, will become your burdens. Oftentimes, or at least not quite often enough, Ginger and I will get to go on a date. We'll get to go to dinner, movie, or something like that. And, and we'll decide, because you know we're, we're maybe at the point where we just really need a break, we'll decide during this time that we're on this time together, we are not going to talk about the people, the problems, the needs of NRLC. We're just not going to even mention it. We're just going to like kind of make that a, a boundary that we're not going to cross. And I'm, I'm sorry to tell you, but usually after about five minutes, <laughs> usually 
we begin to share with each other about who we're praying for from this body. We, we talk about who we're really concerned about in this body. Things that are happening in your lives that we're celebrating. See, for us, it's just reflexive. It, it, it's, it's not that we're, that we're trying to do that or that there's some discipline that we've built to do that. It's just reflexive. Our love for you guys makes it so. And what Paul's saying, he's saying he's felt the same way about the people that he loved and that he ministered to. But suke also implies not only just the thoughts and the mind, but the will. Paul made decisions based on what was best for the Thessalonians. Like, for example, when he left Timothy and Silas behind, when they could have been a tremendous value to him while he was traveling. The use of Paul's will for the Thessalonians is captured in the beautiful description, the two beautiful descriptions he makes of himself in that passage we read as like a nursing mother. He said, I was like a nursing mother to you. And he says, on the other hand, that he was like a father with his children. What he's saying is in his ministry to them, Paul, as their very brief pastor, encapsulated in one single man, loving parental devotion. I love that. See, there's nothing, few would argue with me, but there's nothing more beautiful in all the world than a very comfortable, uh, you know, just comforted baby nestled at its mother's breast. That's just such a beautiful, wonderful thing. See, a bond forms in that moment, in those quiet, tender moments, a bond forms that can take that same tender, gentle woman and turn her into an absolute grizzly bear if you mess with her kids. Right? Mamas, right? Paul was gentle, not harsh, with the Thessalonians. And and yet he was ready to defend them against anyone who would dare to deceive them or derail their progress as they were following Christ. He wouldn't stand for it. But he says he's also like a father, exhorting, encouraging, and charging or challenging them. Listen to me, guys. Kids need dads to cheer them on. They need them. One of the biggest results, if you trace it back, one of the roots of the problems we have in this country is the epidemic of fatherlessness. It's killing our country. Kids need dads. And they need them, they need them to step into their lives and expect more. They need them to to call out the greatness in them, especially when they don't see it themselves. And this is who Paul was to the Thessalonians. Paul's charge to the Thessalonians was very fatherly. He says, we exhorted each one of you and we encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Paul's direction to them was that even if he never saw their face again, even if he was never going to be with their little church ever again, that they should endure, that they should keep going. Doesn't that sound like a dad? Keep going, stay the course, be steady, keep your eye on the ball. All of that stuff, that's what Paul was telling them. They were to order their lives in a way that was pleasing to God because they'd been called out of the world, they'd always known it, into his eternal kingdom with brand new priorities, with a whole new economy for living, and with a promise of glory that was to be revealed at the end. 
His two letters are dripping with fatherly encouragement to keep on enduring through hardship. As a spiritual parent, Paul exercised his will for the Thessalonians' benefit. And one thing he never did was demand that they serve for his benefit. That's a dad. But the psyche, or the, or the suke, the soul, is also the fountain of our emotions. Think about Paul's words in this letter. Verse 8, he was affectionately desirous of you. He had, you had become very dear to us. Then verse 17, past where we read today, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Verse 20, we, you are our glory and joy. In chapter 3, verse 6, he says, we long to see you. Paul describes all the joy that we feel for your sake in verse 9 of chapter 3. True Christianity, listen to me please. True Christianity is not a life of feelings. It's not. But it is certainly a life that feels. You follow me? It's not about, we don't kind of just float on the wind by whatever we feel, whatever fuzzy-wuzzy little thing we're feeling. But you cannot be a Christian without having the, the depth of involvement of your emotions. You just can't. It's not possible. Think of the times in the Gospels that describe Jesus as being moved with compassion. When when was the last time you or I were ever moved to actually acting because of our compassion either for the lost or for our brothers and sisters in Christ? I hope it was recently and it will be frequently from here on out. Our love for God and others in action, if it's genuine, will constantly exercise and display the whole range of our emotions. In relating together to others, one another, brothers and sisters in Christ, the Bible gives us this instruction. It says, rejoice with those who rejoice. Here's some emotions in that. It says, weep with those who weep. And even more, man, if we're talking about how we are to relate to the Lord himself, think about just the five short verses of Psalms 100. It says, make a joyful noise to the Lord. All the earth, serve the Lord with gladness. These are emotion words. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us. We are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. That for the Lord is good. We rejoice in the Lord because he has revealed who he is to us. And we cannot help but spring forth in joy when we truly, truly meditate on who he is. So sharing our souls, this idea of Paul saying we, we didn't just share the gospel, but we kind of, we kind of uh, you know, sowed the field first by sharing our lives and, and continued to share our lives and our souls. Sharing our souls is the essence, in one sense, of the act of taking communion together. The word communion literally denotes a common union. That should be obvious. Members of Christ's church, which you are, if you're a believer in Jesus, they come to the table not only feasting on Christ, which we make that statement frequently, but we're also not just feasting on him, we're sharing him with one another as one body. See, Paul's rebuke of the Corinthians 
in chapter 11. It was based on the fact that they were not sharing the table, but instead they were pushing each other aside, just throwing some elbows and selfishly consuming the elements. By doing so, they were not only failing to share just bread and wine, but they were far, far from sharing their souls. They were not sharing their lives with each other as well. Let's listen to the words again. 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen. it says, But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there's divisions among you. See, Paul couldn't commend them because they were selfish. Not even concerned about the others who had gathered with them. They were divided. They were not commingling their lives together, but they were pursuing only their own agendas, their own interests, their own benefits. And Paul says that their meetings, because of this, were more harmful than good, more harmful than helpful in this regard. And he could not commend them, no matter what else they got right. Now think about that. Think about what else they got right. In just a couple of chapters, Paul is going to celebrate the... Corinthians, because among them, there was all kinds of spiritual gifts in operation. The kind of church most people would want to go to because of the explosion of spiritual gifts. And yet, the presence of that vast number of spiritual gifts operating among them did not compensate for their lack of love for one another. Picking up in 18, verse 18, he said, there's divisions of you among you. And he says, I believe it in part for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. And then he describes their communion service. He says, when you come together, it's not the Lord's supper that you eat for an eating. Each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry. Another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or listen to this phrase carefully. Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. And looking at the Corinthians around the table, all Paul could see was injustice and inequity. There was not a heart to serve each other or to elevate those who were downtrodden, just as each one goes ahead with his own. That's what he was seeing. He said to take communion in this way was to despise the church of God. Well, hey, Paul, come on, we're showing up every Sunday. We sing loud, we give, you know, we, we like the preacher okay. But he's saying that, that, that to have such disregard for the other members of the body was literally to despise the bride, the body of Christ. That's heavy-duty accusation, guys. This is at least part of what Paul meant when he said later in this chapter in verse 29, for anyone who eats and drinks without, listen to this phrase, discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now think about this. Every time we gather for communion, there are two representations of the body of Christ at this table. First, of course, there is the bread, which represents the physical body of Christ, which was beaten, broken, bled out, sacrificed for our sins. But that's not the only representation of the body of Christ. You know what the other one is? It's you. 
It's you. Paul says that we are the body of Christ, each one members of one another. We're connected. It's not a finger over here and an ear over... Well, there is a finger right there, but there isn't a, there's, there's not a... Sorry, you can't... You, so there, there's, there's not different body parts scattered all over. We're one body. And that body, when we do this common union, we're coming together as the represented body of Christ, every bit as much as this is a representation of the body of Christ. One living, breathing body of Christ. When people don't recognize the reality of what's going on here in either one way or both ways, when they don't recognize it, they dishonor Christ. And they're warned that the Lord will discipline those who so dishonor Christ's body. So that's not meant, it may sound heavy, it's not meant to be heavy. It's an invitation to say, hey, let's, let's get this thing right. So I want us to come to the table to partake of the Lord's Supper this morning. If I could have my communion helpers come. I want us to take the table this morning. And I'm not going to ask you to do something in your mind. In other words, sometimes I ask you to make an act of repentance, changing your mind when we come to the table and think this way instead of that way, that sort of thing. But today I want to ask you to do something different. I'm asking you to do something different with your bodies, okay? And here's what I want to ask you to do. I want you to come this morning with a greater awareness. Why don't you all stand up? This might make this easier. I want you to come this morning to the table of the Lord with a greater awareness of your brothers and your sisters who are joining you, that they don't focus so much on this representation of the body, which is important, that you neglect this representation of the body. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. Think about your brothers and sisters. And here's what I want you to do. This is going to be a stretch for some of you. Fight through it. Okay? I want to say real quickly, we have a couple of guests this morning. If you're a guest, I'm not expecting you to participate. You are welcome to participate, but I'm not asking you to. I understand. This is, this is new. This is different. This is family business in one sense. Before you partake, I want to ask you to take a moment. Find at least one person, but I hope you'll find three or four, five. And I want you to share your soul with that person. Before you take, come up, get your morsel, dip it. And then go find someone to share your soul with. Well, what does that look like, Mark? Well, maybe you're here and you know that there's someone here who desperately needs a word of encouragement. Maybe you don't know it, but you just sense it. Maybe there's someone here who you haven't even, as been, you've been coming to the same church for a long time, but you don't know them. Maybe it's just time to, to um, go up to them and greet them and say, hey, I am so glad to be a part of this body with you. I love going to church with you. Maybe there's someone here that you uh, either know again or sense that they could use a brief word of prayer just to, to fill them with encouragement that they need, that they're, they're running pretty low on, uh, on it, that their, their tank is empty and you can provide what they need. But I want you to come this morning with the intention to take a few minutes. Look, we're not in any rush. I want you to come this morning with the intention to not just come and remember that Jesus died, which is very good, very important, and just gobble up a piece of bread. I want you to go and say, hey, I want 
to share this bread with that bread. Follow me? Anybody willing to do that this morning? Find some folks? All right, so what I want you to do, usually I would read the, 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 the text and I'd pray, and I'm going to do that in a minute, but I want you to take a minute, put up 60 seconds, and I want you to not bow your heads, not close your eyes. I want you to look around this room. Everybody, turn around, look around. And I want you to ask God to speak to you about the faces you're looking at and who he would have you. Don't just do it randomly. Don't grab the people that are closest to you. Find the people that God would have you speak something to. And then go even further and ask him, what do you want me to speak? What do you want me to pray? How do you want me to encourage? But make sure that no one leaves here this morning without a word of encouragement, a word of prayer, a word of greeting. Can we do it? Can we do it? One more time. Can we do it? All right. Just take a minute. The Lord will speak to you if you let him. Look around. says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Father, thank you, thank you, thank you for making us a part of this body, Lord. Thank you for all the times that I've experienced encouragement and joy and even rebuke and correction, Lord, from the folks in this body. Lord, I pray that we would become diligent as a people to reflect your body, to reflect what Christ is in this world, Lord God. God, we thank you for the representation of your sacrifice in the broken bread, Lord, that your body was broken, Lord God, so that we as your body could be whole. We thank you for the blood that was spilled, that has washed our sins whiter than snow, the scriptures say. 
God, we thank you for that. Lord, we could not be united to each other. We could not share common union if it wasn't for you. So God, I thank you for that, Lord. God, I pray that you would use this time that we are sharing our souls with each other, Lord God, to bring healing, to bring restoration, to bring deliverance, to bring joy and peace to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, the greatest miracle you could probably do this morning would be to turn our attention away from ourselves and towards each other. And so that's what we're asking for this morning, Lord. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may come.